I know we have some, uh, some visitors who've come here for the first time in a while, and we're so grateful that everyone is here to join us tonight. Let me start with just really quickly recapping where we've been so that we know where we are and where we're going. Okay, so here's what we set out to do at the beginning of this year. God put a huge burden on my heart that if, if I had the opportunity, which he has begun to unfold, that through the next year that I would teach what we're calling understanding the Bible. And I would do that by answering five main questions. And those five questions are this. What is the Bible? How did we get the Bible? What is the message of the Bible? Why can we trust the Bible? And how should we read the Bible? And in each one of those questions on Sunday nights, we've taken six weeks to answer each one of those questions. So we've already been through question one, what is the Bible? We spent six weeks on that. We went through se- uh, section two, which is uh, how did we get the Bible? We spent six weeks on that. Now we're right in the middle of section three, which is what is the message of the Bible? All right, we're in section three, and today we're in unit 3.3. And the title of our unit here tonight is The Old Testament, God Establishes a Covenant and Builds a Nation. All right, so the first two weeks of section three, what is the message of the Bible? We said the one word that should come to your mind when we talk about the message of the Bible is gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. And I said I wanted to put it in our minds as we study the good news, as we, see, as we search the scriptures for the message, we want to start from the big picture, okay, the telescopic view of the gospel, And we want to just continue to narrow down, narrow down, narrow down, narrow down. And so we've gone to the big picture. We've talked about how the Bible talks about creation and then the fall of man and then the promise that God would send a Messiah and then the redemption that the Messiah comes and then the restoration that will take place when the Messiah comes back a second time. And last, last time I was here, we talked about a little bit further down. We said you could describe the gospel in five points, which is God, who's holy and loving, Man, who was created in his image to be holy and loving. Sin, which tainted that love and that holiness. Christ, who came as fully God and fully man and lived holy and loving and restored that image. And then response. What do we, how do we respond to that message? Because the one thing about the gospel, it commands a response. We either accept through repentance and faith, we accept the Lord Jesus Christ on his terms or we reject him and we try to live life on our terms. So that's the gospel. Well, how did it unfold in Scripture? I know this is a big task for me in less than 40 minutes to try to give us a complete presentation of the Old Testament. So I'm just going to hit the high notes. I'm going to hit the mountaintops. I'm going I'm to be covering a lot of ground in a short period of time. I'm sure most of you who own a Bible, who've been reading the Bible, know most of this. But sometimes we have little gaps in our understanding. So I hope tonight's message would help us to fill the gaps in a little bit so that we could see this beautiful message unfold, starting with Genesis, and tonight we'll end with Malachi. All right, again, unit 3.3, the Old Testament. We're going to see how God establishes a covenant and builds a nation. So let's start with number one, okay, on your listening guides. Number one, God's promises for God's people. Again, we're moving from the telescope down to the microscope, and we're starting to look through the Old Testament at what God is revealing to us. And the first thing I want to say is this about the Bible. God progressively over the course of 1,500 years in Scripture began to reveal himself slowly and intentionally. And the reason why is God is so massive, we could not 
receive him all at one time. There's no way that we could fully understand who he is and his desire for us and the rest of the world if he came to us and told us all about him at one time. And so God in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, condescended to this earth to reveal to us through scripture who he is progressively one stage at a time. And he began to do that through a covenant and through a nation. And that nation, of course, is the holy nation of Israel. And we see as we read the Old Testament, we see in the book of Genesis, okay, the very beginning with creation. And then we start seeing from Adam and Eve, their descendants, and then their descendants. And then finally, we'll see here in a minute how the nation of Israel starts through one person and then begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we begin to see God's plan clearer and clearer and clearer. If you look at the second part of uh, number one, it says in his book, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible, Christian scholar Max Anders makes the case that the entire Old Testament narrative can be explained in nine progressive eras. By the way, this is a great book if you ever want to read a really good survey of the Bible, something that's not going to bog you down with all these theology terms, but can help you to really see the good storyline of Scripture. Max Anders writes a couple of great books, and 30 Days to Understanding the Bible is a great one. Here's what he says, nine eras from Genesis all the way to Malachi, nine checkpoints in understanding the Old Testament. Here's what he says. Creation, patriarch, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, and then silence. Those are the nine that he describes. I'm going to take those nine and kind of put them in my own words. But we're, for the next 35, 40 minutes, we're going to walk through those. So if you could just, in your mind's eye, think about the very beginning in the Garden of Eden and follow me as I walk through the storyline of the Old Testament. Again, for some of you, this is review, but I hope it's very helpful in filling in some gaps so that we see how this story begins to unfold. So let's start with number two, from a fallen creation to a chosen nation. All right, we talked at great length the last two weeks about creation. We saw in Genesis 1, we see in the very first sentence, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What did we learn from that first verse in Genesis 1-1? From the beginning means that God has always existed. There never was a beginning, middle, or end for God. He always has been, He is, and He always will be. But we also know that He's all-powerful because He created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. The fancy Latin term for that is called ex nihilo. He took it out of nothing. There was not dirt and water, and he just molded and created from there. There was absolutely nothing when God first created. And then when he created the earth, we know that it took him six days to create the earth, and at the end of the sixth day, he rested. But the final thing that he did before he rested was the crown jewel of his creation, and that was human beings. That's how we know that we are more important than any other creature in the world because he saved the best for last. And he did something with human beings that he did with no other creature on this earth. And he made us in his image. We see that a lot in Genesis, but we need to understand what it means. What it means is you and I were created in such a way that we should point to him. We should be a reflection of his love. We should be a reflection of his holiness. God created us to reflect him to one another so that as I see you and you see me, we think of him and we worship him. But what happened? 
The first two human beings, Adam and Eve, lived in this garden. It was a garden of paradise. It was a garden with no sin, a garden with no death, a garden with no disease, a garden with no pain. And God said, you can dwell and enjoy all the fruits of this garden except the tree over there. You are not to eat from this forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And what happens? We know the story. Satan slithers into the garden as a serpent, a crafty serpent who convinces Eve to eat of the fruit. She hands the fruit over to Adam and he eats of it. And all of a sudden they come under the curse because they brought sin into the garden. All right. The curse is obviously that man's going to work by the sweat of the brow, that women's going to have pain in childbirth, and they're going to be separated from God, kicked out of the garden. And so they're kicked out of the garden. And that's where we are at Genesis. And then we see God beginning to reveal more about himself from Adam and Eve through their descendants. And we see this story to start to unfold. So far, I don't think I've said anything that anybody in this room's not heard a thousand times. But follow me in the storyline. So Adam and Eve, made in God's image, sinned against God, kicked out of the garden. Then after Adam and Eve, we, also, we hear the story all of a sudden of Noah and this coming flood. God sees Noah, tells him to build this ark. It takes Noah over a century to build it. He builds it, and then all of a sudden, God makes good on his promise that he was going to flood the earth because of the disobedience of man, and that's exactly what he does. Noah gets his immediate family on the ark. He gets the creatures on the ark that, he, that they could reproduce, and then all of a sudden, the rains come, and the flood takes over the whole earth that no one outside of the ark survives. And after the flood, as Noah gets off the ark, he's expected to repopulate the earth and create a new bloodline of righteousness. But he and his family continue to fall short of the glory of God over and over and over again. So we see this desire that God has for man to be obedient, but the complete lack of mankind to be obedient. So Noah is not righteous and is unable to maintain faithfulness. And then we see all through the descendants of Noah, we get down to this man and your, your next blank, by the way, your first blank, I'm sorry I skipped over that, your first blank in point one was God. I think most of you probably got that, that the story of Israel is really a story about God and the Old Testament is a historical account of how this story ultimately points to the promise of a Messiah. But your second blank in point two is, is the name Abraham. Abraham received a special revelation and covenant promise from God. All right, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. So Abraham was considered a righteous man because he followed and believed in the one true God. In a, in a world of idolatry with all these false gods, Abraham knew and believed in the one true God. And because of his faith, God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you and with your people that through you is going to come a nation that will bless the rest of the world. And so Abraham is pointed at as the father of this wonderful new nation that would come and point to the rest of the world of God's holiness and God's love. So we see from, from Abraham, of course, Abraham of course has several children. He got a little anxious and got ahead of God and, and had a child of course from Hagar, the Egyptian slave, and that was Ishmael, but then he has the promised child. God said he would give him a child in his old age and he gives him Isaac. All right? And then we see from Isaac, Isaac had a few sons. One of them was Jacob. And then we see from Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. And this is where this nation starts to form. All right, Jacob wrestles with God and God renames him Israel. 
And then he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And I wrote down here at the end of point two, these are the names of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Joseph, and Benjamin. So you have all the way starting with Adam, going down to Noah, then to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, and then Jacob has these 12 sons. And God says, told Abraham, through your lineage, I'll build a nation. Then he says to Jacob, I rename you Israel, and that's going to be the name of this nation. And the 12 tribes of this nation are going to be your 12 sons. So that brings us to number three, breaking free from Egyptian bondage. What happens? Well, Jacob and his sons go through a severe famine in the land of Canaan. But God, in his providence and his wisdom, enables Joseph, one of the 12 sons, to be taken over into Egypt, originally as a slave, but eventually exalts him as a leader. In fact, he's the second in charge after Pharaoh. And eventually, Jacob and his other sons migrate to Egypt because they need food and they need Joseph's protection. So everyone leaves Canaan. They go into Egypt, into the promised land, and they are there, or they go out of the promised land, excuse me, into Egypt, and they are there, and they continue to grow, and they continue to multiply, and here's what happens. After Joseph and Pharaoh die, all of a sudden, there's no more protection for the people of Israel, and they multiply and multiply and multiply, and all these new leaders in Egypt are scared and intimidated by the power of Israel. So what do they do? They enslave them. And they, I mean, they just continue to enslave and, and, and over and over and over each generation, they continue to be harder and harder and harder and harder on the Israelites. And what do they do as, 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 as if all the slavery is just being pressed in on them? They're crying out to God. They're crying out to God. They want to be free from the slavery of the Egyptians. And God, in his love, hears their cries, and he decides to send a redeemer to get them out of Egypt. And the next blank there, most of you probably already filled it in, that redeemer's name is Moses. And Moses, of course, has this unique lineage. He's born a Hebrew but he's adopted into the family of Pharaoh. So he's got royalty, but he's also got the original Hebrew bloodlines. And he does not want any part of this ministry. God speaks to him through the burning bush and tells him to go back and and eventually speak to Pharaoh and do whatever it takes to get the people out of Egypt. And that's exactly what he does after kicking and screaming his whole way there. He goes back to Egypt We know that uh, in the book of Exodus, there's a series of plagues that God puts on Pharaoh because Pharaoh will not release the people, but eventually Pharaoh does release the people. And through several miracles, the people eventually get out of Egypt and they are able to find their way into the wilderness. But we also find out they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And they're in the wilderness for four decades because they're disobedient and they simply will not trust God and obey God. If you remember anything, if you've read from Exodus, they go into the wilderness and God establishes the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. God gives them these Ten Commandments. Uh, Moses comes down and sees how disobedient they are. He gets angry and breaks the, the, the cold stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. God, in His grace, reestablishes the Ten Commandments, begins to establish this nation and the laws by which govern this nation, and he gives them a tabernacle in which he says, I will dwell with you, just obey me. All right, he travels with them by day and by night, a pillar of cloud and 
fire and he travels with them and he, he showers down bread from heaven called manna. So they have everything they need and they're simply called to tr- trust and obey God. And yet we see this cycle over and over again where they continue to disobey him. They continue to disobey him. So that moves us on to point number four, taking possession of a promised land. All right. Again, they're under punishment because they simply will not obey God. They won't trust Him. They go around and around in circles, which if you look at a map today, at the way they traveled in the wilderness during those 40 years, you just wish that they had GPS back then because they were so close so many times to entering into the promised land, but they refused to trust God. They trusted in themselves. They bickered. And entire generations of Israelites died without ever seeing the promise that God had made for them. But what happens? At the end of 40 years, all of a sudden Moses leads them to the edge of this promised land. But before they enter, God says to Moses, they can enter, but you can't. You've been disobedient. You've cracked a rock one too many times against my word because of your frustration. And you are not, you cannot enter this land. I'll let you get to the mountaintop to get a peek of it, but I'm not going to let you in it. I got another man who I'm going to raise up to lead the people in. And your next blank there is Joshua. Joshua is the one that's going to lead them through what is called the conquest of Canaan. Now, Canaan, think about this. Canaan is the land that Jacob and his 12 sons originally were living in. Now, they fled from that land to go to Egypt because of the famine, but God had prepared and protected that land that they would one day be able to come back. All right, so Joshua leads them into this promised land of milk and honey. They conquer and wipe out all of the enemies in this land, and they get ready to settle. And as they settle, basically these 12 tribes know exactly which areas geographically they're allowed to settle into, and they all lay down their roots. And so begins a new era in Jewish history. They finally are in the promised land. All the 12 tribes have the specific land that's been carved out for them. The only people that don't get the land is the Levites because they're the priests who've been given this great privilege of of leading in worship and making the sacrifices on behalf of the people. All right, so they begin this journey, and that leads us into the book of Judges as we make it now to point five, the makings of a monarchy. And for the next 400 years, the Israelites are ruled by judges. It's kind of a loose form of government. They're not kings. But they are people who are sent to redeem and guide and help the nation of Israel. In fact, there's a cycle. All right, if you look at the first bullet point under point five, you'll see this cycle happens in six stages. All right, if you read through the book of Judges, you'll, you'll, you'll see this happen over and over and over again. Here's the six, the six stages that take place in Judges. You see, one, Israel serves the Lord. Then two, Israel falls into sin and idolatry. And then three, Israel is enslaved. And then four, Israel cries out to the Lord. Then five, God raises up a judge to deliver Israel. And then number six, Israel is delivered. And this cycle happens over and over. It's like a washing machine. It's got the spin cycle. It just keeps coming back over and over and over again. Everything is going well. Then all of a sudden they fall into sin. Then they're enslaved in sin, then they cry out to God to forgive them. God brings a judge who forgives them, redeems them. They get restored, and then they forget. And it happens over and over and over. Finally, after about 400 years of living under the rule of judges, Israel's crying out, we want a king. We want a king. Every other nation has a king. God, why can't we have a king? 
And I want to say this very important point. God always intended to give them a king, but not because of the reasons they wanted one. They wanted a king so they could be like every other country. God wanted to give them a king so that he could prepare them that ultimately they'd be led by the one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But God grants their wish because God is graceful, and he decides that through the prophet Samuel, he's going to anoint the first king of Israel. And of course, that king, your next blank there, is Saul. And King Saul becomes the first king, and he's eventually followed by David and Solomon. And we see these three kings lead into a united monarchy for about 120 years. But here's what happens. When Solomon dies, all of a sudden there's a lot of bickering in the nation of Israel. And they're bickering over issues of taxes. Okay, Taxes are a problem now. Taxes were a problem then. Taxes will always be a problem until Christ comes back. They're arguing over taxes, and so they decide to split. You know, I've often said that we Southern Baptists are notorious for church splits, but boy, splits happened in the Christian faith and in the, Israel, in the Jewish faith long before we ever showed up on the scene. These 12 tribes could not get along, so they decide to split. And 10 of the 12 tribes become the northern kingdom, and they're known simply as Israel. And then the southern kingdom are the other two tribes, the remnant, and they're known as Judah because the biggest tribe of the two is Judah and the other tribe is Benjamin. So they split because of taxes, and then you have the northern kingdom, and then you have the southern kingdom. And that moves us on to point number six, making good time here. We'll have plenty of time for discussion and questions. All right, so point number six, Israel's unrepentance ends in exile. So here's what happens. Let me say, this is a really confusing point that a lot of people don't get. There's two different major exiles in the Old Testament. One is the Assyrian exile, and the other is the Babylonian exile. So let me talk about the first one, okay? Those are your two blanks, by the way, for point six. The first blank is Assyria. That's A-S-S-Y-R-I-A. And then your second one is Babylonia or Babylon. I've seen them listed both ways. B-A-B-Y-L-O-N-I-A. So here's what happened. First, the Assyrian exile took place with the northern kingdom, the 12 tribes in the north. All right, there's... The nation of Assyria is the powerhouse at the time. They come in, they steal and plunder all the goods of the northern kingdom, and then the, Is- the Israelites in the northern kingdom are spread all over the world. We don't talk a whole lot about that because the Old Testament mentions it, but doesn't go into great detail about it. But the other exile, the Babylonian exile, is the one that we see very vividly in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Jeremiah. God is telling them over and over again, turn back to me, repent of your sin. If you don't repent of your sin, I'm going to give you into the hands of your sworn enemies. They would not listen. And what, does, what happens? Babylonia, they storm right into Jerusalem. They burn the temple down to the ground. They plunder all the best parts of the temple, all the gold and all, I mean, all, everything that was valuable. They plunder all their goods and they steal what, the remnant that's left and they drag these people into Babylon for a 70-year sentence. By the way, side note, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 29, 11. Most of you probably know it by heart. I call it one of a, it's a coffee cup, coffee cup verse. A lot of people have it on their morning coffee cups. It's, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, it's a great verse, but we need to understand that verse in context. In its context, God is saying, I'm sending you into a 70-year prison sentence, but I know what I'm doing. Trust in me. I still love you, and I still have a plan for your future. 
So we, we hand that, that verse out to people when they're headed to college. It's almost, you know, and, and again, there, there, it, it, there is a benefit for Christians. We can say that God does love us and God does have a plan for us. But that verse specifically is saying to the exiles, I know you're going to prison. I know you're going to be there a long time, but I didn't forget about you. I love you and I have a great plan for your life. So continue to trust in me even while you're in exile in Babylon and I will bless you. That's what Jeremiah 29, 11 is all about. So, that's the Babylonian exile. And that leads us to point seven. All right, so they're, they're in there for 70 years. We see through some of the books of the Old Testament, like the book of Daniel, God does bless Israel even while they're in Babylon. He does all kinds of miracles that continue to point to His glory. And then finally, here's what happens. And this happens through the history of the whole world. Empires are meant to fall. All right, empires are meant to fall. The Assyrian Empire, all right, and is eventually overthrown by Babylon. And then Babylon is eventually overthrown by Persia. And then the king of Persia says to the Israelites who are still living in captivity, why don't you go back to Jerusalem? I will give you permission to go back, rebuild your temple, and go and worship your God. And we see this vividly in the book of Nehemiah. That's your next blank. Is under the leadership of Nehemiah, the temple is rebuilt. So is the city. And so is the ceremonial worship of the one true God as they're sent home to worship and to rebuild. So we see them coming out of exile. They go back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. They reestablish the covenant. And they begin to worship God. And this takes place over the next four centuries. Now, right shortly after Nehemiah comes back, we hear of these other prophets that come and speak and, and proclaim that they must be obedient And the last one to do that is Malachi, as we see at the end of the Old Testament. And then after Malachi, silence. For 400 years, God stopped speaking through his prophets. And so the nation of Israel continues to grow. They continue to rebuild the city. They continue to worship according to the covenant. But they also continue to sin. And they also continue to struggle. And they continue to cry out and ask God to once and for all make a way for their sins to be forgiven. Again, your last blank there is Malachi if you didn't get a chance to get that. But I want to say as as I kind of draw this to a close, I'm going to make some general comments and then open up for discussion. This period of silence was not God abandoning His chosen nation, but ultimately it was preparing them for a chosen Messiah. It was preparing them for a chosen Messiah. I said this this morning. It's so important for us to understand this. If you read the Old Testament in isolation, you might begin to think that God is a God who plays favorites because we see that God pulls and chooses this nation out of the rest of the world, gives them this special covenant, blesses them in in amazing ways. But it's not because God loved them more than He loved the rest of the world. It's because God wanted to use them to point to the rest of the world, to who He is. In fact, if you see every miracle in the Old Testament, it ultimately points to God. I'll give you the perfect example. This is almost always taught incorrectly. David and Goliath, one of the great stories of the Old Testament. When it's being taught today, I often hear of it taught in such a way that we need to be brave like David was brave. 
And if we're brave, then God's going to bless us the way that he blessed David. And that's not exactly the, the main point of the passage. We all know that David and Goliath, Goliath, of course, of the Philistines, was this giant who continued to slay all these droves of Israelites. And then this little shepherd boy named David who can't even put his equipment on says i'm going to kill this philistine and he, of course by the slingshot kills the philistine cuts off his head and is the great king that everybody celebrates but the reason why this happened and why god gave the victory david says to the philistine today in the presence of these people i'm going to kill you so that the people will know that there is a god in israel God had to use the weakest of the weak to point to his power, to point to his strength, to point for our need for him to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Think about the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. God's plan, again, God's revealing to us who he is and why he created us. God created us because he loves us and he wanted to shepherd us And he simply wanted us to love and obey and worship him. If we followed him and we listened to him and we obeyed him, none of us in this room would ever experience physical pain or death or separation from ones that we love. All that's a result of sin. God has always said since the very beginning, just follow my lead. I want to love you as a father loves a child. But we, since the very beginning, because God did bless us with the gift of free will, We've been rebelling against God, and that sin has been killing us ever since. And so I want to say this before we kind of open it up for discussion. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. That whole book, the Bible from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation, is a book about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you don't hear the name of Jesus mentioned in the Old Testament because God hasn't fully revealed that until we get to the Gospels. But the entire Bible points to this need for a Savior. Okay, we talked a few weeks ago about Genesis 3.15. That's the first call of the gospel where God is speaking to the serpent in the garden and he's speaking to Adam and Eve and he's saying to the serpent and to Eve, there's going to come an offspring from the woman and you may bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. The bruising of the heel was the, the crucifixion on the cross, but the crushing of the head was coming out of an empty tomb three days later. The whole Old Testament is pointing to the need for a Savior. As we see Israel in the book of Exodus, they're in the the wilderness and they just can't seem to obey the law. They see this law, it shows them how sinful they are. They disobey, disobey, disobey. They wander for 40 years. God finally forgives them. They come into the promised land, but they disobey, disobey, disobey. They continue to struggle and struggle. They have judges and eventually kings. They separate all the time. God is saying, obey me, obey me, obey me. But they sinned over and over and over again. Paul tells us in the New Testament the primary reason that God gave the law was to show them that they couldn't keep it. It was a mirror to show them their unrighteousness that they would cry out to God for a Redeemer who would give them His righteousness. The law points to Jesus because without Jesus, nobody can keep it. It shows us our sin. It's a mirror. Without the law, we would not know what sin is. That's what Paul is saying in the letters over and over and over again. God had to send the law for us to know that we needed a Savior. But God never intended for anybody to be saved by obedience to the law. Never. 
He gave the law to show that we just couldn't be faithful to him and we needed a savior to be faithful for us. And that's the message. Okay, we'll talk more next week in the New Testament about how that message is more fleshed out, but that's the gospel message. Jesus Christ did everything that Israel could not do. He lived perfectly for 33 years. He did everything the law required. He did not, he did not break a single part of that law at any time. Now, I've had people question me there and say, well, Bo, didn't he heal on the Sabbath when the Bible tells us that we need to rest on the Sabbath? No, what Jesus did was redefine for us what the law was really all about. And I'm going to tell you why. We talked about the exile, right? We said that these two big exiles happened where the northern kingdom was kicked out of the Holy Land and they were scattered all over the world and then the southern kingdom was kicked out and dragged into Babylon. Well, when they came back 70 years later under the leadership of Nehemiah and they rebuilt the temple, these, these, these Jews were so passionate to make sure they would never get kicked out of their land again. Here's what they did. They took the laws that God gave them through Moses and they added to the law. All right? They added to the law. They added these commentaries where they said, if we do this, 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 and this, we won't even come close to breaking the law way over here. And so I, I shared this many weeks ago. I think, I think it was last year through the book of Mark how they had, I think it was called the Midrash. It was this commentary that told them how they could keep the law. I'll give you an example of how this works. So, the, so that one of the Ten Commandments is to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, to rest on the Sabbath day. Well, to add to that law, to make sure they would never break it, they said that there was only a certain amount of steps they could take in a given day. It was a certain amount of strides of a Roman soldier. All right, so they could only, go, they could only take enough, enough steps to go to synagogue and be able to come back. And anyone that took more steps than they prescribed was sinning. And so here Jesus comes along, and on a Sunday, he heals, and they say, Whoa, I thought you were a Hebrew of Hebrews here. Jesus, I thought you were a great teacher and rabbi. Well, you know better than not to heal on the Sabbath. And, and, and Jesus says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did God make man for the Sabbath or Sabbath for man? Which one? Yeah, he created Sabbath for man, not the other way around. I define the laws around here. It's not, un, it's not unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. It is unlawful to, to hop on your mule and work by the sweat of the brow because you don't trust in six days that God can do for you what you're trying to do for on your, by yourself on the seventh day. And that's exactly what takes place. Jesus redefines the law and shows them over and over and over where they couldn't keep it, he kept it perfectly. So that when he died on the cross, he was the final sacrifice. Now remember in the Old Testament, any time an Israelite sinned, their sin had to be atoned for. And the way they were atoned in the Old Testament was the sacrifice of animals and the shedding of blood. Now, when I first became a believer, that made no sense to me. I used to say all the time, why do animals have to die for people to be forgiven? All right? The wages of sin is death. So where there is sin, there will always be death. And God enabled a sacrificial system to where when the animals were killed, God took the punishment that we deserved and he put it into the blood of the animals. The problem is no animal was perfect or great enough to finally take the full penalty for our sin. And that's why we call Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Where all the animals were insufficient, Jesus was perfect in every way. He lived perfectly, and he died sacrificially so that in his shed blood, for anyone who would place their faith in him, all the punishment that we deserved, past, present, future, God put it into the blood of the Savior as he shed it on the cross. 
And so our sins are forgiven because we placed our faith in the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the message that the whole Old Testament is pointing towards. Okay? When you think of the law, don't think that we're ever saved by the law. Think the, the law is showing us that we need a Savior. The law is showing us that we can't keep it. We need somebody to keep it for us. The sacrificial system is showing us there's no animal perfect enough where that animal's blood would cover over everybody's sin. And it points to Jesus, points to Jesus, points to Jesus over and over and over again. So the Old Testament, even though you don't hear the name of Jesus, shows us that we need a Savior, and it points to where we get right in the book of Matthew, and then all of a sudden, we start putting a face and a name to this Messiah that we've been waiting for for over a thousand years. And what a beautiful story it is.